Welcome to Rock Talk, the podcast where a couple of jabronis get to know the movie roles of Dwayne the Rock Johnson. I'm Jordan Rummel, joined as always by my good friend and co-host Charlie Guile. Charlie, how are you doing? I'm doing really well. You know, a little peek behind the curtain here. This is actually the second time we've had to record this episode, but this time it was a pleasure. The first time we had to do this was for Tooth Fairy, and I think that actually took three records, and by the third time, we were just spent talking about that stupid, stupid movie. But this time, it seems like a pleasure. How do you feel about it? I couldn't agree more. Uh, in fact, I uh, I relish the opportunity to speak about this movie a second time because there's just so much in it that I feel like, you know, we spent an hour and 20 minutes getting through it and you know realized that there was more that we needed to discuss. And that is just a testament to the infinite well that are these Fast and Furious movies which is appropriate because today we are discussing a movie very near and dear to both our hearts. It is the spectacular, unbelievable, completely improbable seventh film in the Fast and Furious franchise, and that would be 2015's Furious 7. But before that, of course, it's time for our Rock News of the Week. Mazel! That's fantastic news! We have some really interesting news on the Rampage front because they just changed... Today, they just changed the release date. They moved it up one week. It was April 20th. Now it's April 13th. The Rock posted an Instagram video announcing that, explaining that, you know what? It absolutely was because the Avengers moved up their release date. It would have conflicted. In the movie business, there's a little bit of jockeying when it comes to release dates. And you can actually maximize a ton of profit if you pick the right release date. A perfect example of that is Jumanji. Yeah, I don't like this move, though, because just like you said, look at Jumanji. Look what it was up against. It was up against movies like Star Wars, and look at the amount of money it made. I want to see my Dwayne Johnson films go up against the best of the best. I want to see them take on big money movies and beat them. Second piece of news we have this week is Dwayne Johnson posted a couple of videos, and one is great news, it's funny, and the other one is a little sad, but we'll start off with the good news. And it's that on Oscars night, Dwayne Johnson accepted a Razzie on behalf of Baywatch. They ended up creating a whole new category for this movie. Basically, it's a good movie that you you love anyway, which I didn't really get from Baywatch. I don't love Baywatch. Who out there thinks that Baywatch was so bad that it was good? It does not qualify as one of those movies. When I think bad movies that are good, I'm thinking Teen Witch. I'm thinking Bloodsport. I'm not thinking Baywatch. Baywatch offended me on nearly every level. It it hurts me to th- to think about it even to this day. Um, I do want to say, uh, and Charlie, this is something you pointed out to me this afternoon. But the shirt that Dwayne Johnson is wearing in this video, oh my gosh, is incredible. It's it's Dwayne Daddy Johnson emphasis on the daddy. It says <laughs> he he's doing this whole video, but the only I can only focus on his shirt, and it just says. It's a black shirt with white letters, and it says, dog people are cool. Yeah, they are. <laughs> Which is so funny. I don't imagine him wearing shirts with, like, funny slogans or sayings on them. Like, I'm usually imagining him either in workout gear or in a three-piece suit in ballers. Like, there's right. really there's no, no in-between in between at all. I'm sure that this shirt is referring to, like, pet owners, but for some reason, I can just... I just am imagining like dog human hybrids in the way that it's written. <laughs> like, like dog like dog like hybrid dog people. people. <laughs> yeah, dog human 
I don't know wow. why, but that's that's the image I'm getting. We should definitely uh, look more into that. But one interesting thing, you know, it seems like he's finally being able to joke about the failure of Baywatch. Uh, you know, if you go back to our Baywatch episode, we talk a little bit about this. He defended it on Twitter, saying that, you know, I, I'm happy that audiences are pleased with this movie and screwed all the critics that said that it was bad. But now he's kind of coming around to it and realizing that it was a huge failure. But even so, there's I am frustrated in the fact that he still gets the validation in that this movie has been given it so bad it's good. Like, he almost, he still almost gets to win with Baywatch when I need him to understand it is very much a loss. <laughs> Maybe we're in the minority. I mean, we are definitely in the minority of people that take every single one of his movies and break it down in near pornographic detail. But mm. uh, maybe other people really do like this. I, I, you know, Dylan Irwin, we've had him on the show before. He, he, I don't know if he mentioned this on mic or not, but he actually liked Baywatch. Which oh, he makes, mentioned it like ten times in his episode. Yeah, it well, makes his me his incorrect it. opinion. Yeah, like this is now my brother-in-law. Yeah, have, and he's a he's gross as far as I can tell. Yeah, Ugh. <laughs> I'm sorry for you and your family. Well, not to put a damper on the situation, but The Rock actually posted an Instagram video this afternoon, reaching out to all the first responders that dealt with him and his baby girl. Apparently, there was some 911 call, some health emergency that took place last night, and he just made you know a really heartfelt video, you know, uh, thanking all the first responders at. It seems like his his daughter Jasmine is okay, but it seems like a scary situation. He didn't really go into any detail, but uh, we're all really thankful that uh, she's that she's doing okay, and we uh, we hope that she'll be healthier in the future. Prayers up for Dwayne Johnson and, and the entire Johnson family. But uh, I think that's all we have for news this week. So I uh, can't wait to get into this movie. Thank you, Charlie, for that rock news. And I am with you. Uh, we have a lot. Of movie to dive into, which means, of course, it is time for Daddy to get going to work. Daddy's got to go to work. Today, as we mentioned, we are taking a look at the incredible Furious 7 2015 PG-13 action thriller. Uh, it was directed by James Wan, who is known entirely for his work directing horror movies. You might have seen some of his work, including any of the Saw movies, uh, The Conjuring and Insidious. Uh, and he also has directed the forthcoming Aquaman movie. So a bit of a uh, bit of a twist after getting his Fast and Furious out of the way. Writers of Furious 7 are two dudes by the name of Chris Morgan and Gary Scott Thompson. Uh, they are the Chris Morgan is the writer of. Uh, of every Fast and Furious from Tokyo Drift onward, uh, including the Hobbs and Shaw spinoff, which is still to come. Uh, Gary Scott Thompson helped develop characters for them, um, but interestingly enough, he already has a credit for Fast 10. Uh, so even though it's a few years away, his name is already attached. So Here, we have a pretty... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Here's my theory about this. I think Gary Scott Thompson created these characters that we all know and love today, but uh, but this guy, Chris Morgan, who's really taken over the helm of the New Testament of Fast and Furious movies, give, it gets main writer credit. But uh, Gary Scott Thompson needs to get that credit for creating the characters. So anytime anything's in, in pre-production, which Hobbs and Shaw is, he's already going to get that credit, even if the script isn't written yet. So that's that's my theory there. 
And with a budget of $190 million, Furious 7, uh, it made a little bit of money. Made a little bit of money. In the United States alone, it made over $353 million. And around the world, Furious 7 brought in, oh, just a cool $1.5 billion bucks. So looks like the Chris Morgan, Gary Scott Thompson connection uh, was working in full effect for Furious 7. That is, it's astounding. I mean, $353 million just in the United States, that's more than most movies get worldwide. Most huge blockbusters get worldwide. Um, but it didn't stop there. It went over to, I mean, $1.5 billion. That's an insane amount of money. Uh, I can't imagine a movie hitting $2 billion, but who knows? This Hobbs and Shaw movie or Fast 9 very well might do that. So, uh yeah, I will just... go personally see Hobbs and Shaw enough times to push it over that $2 billion <laughs> mark. Here's the thing. We only saw, tragically, we only saw Fast 8 once in the theaters. I want to fix that for the Hobbs and Shaw movie. Because Hobbs and Shaw, are the, now that Han is no longer in the franchise, they are the two characters that I care about the most. So seeing them front and center in a movie, it's going to be, I cannot wait for it. Oh, I could not agree more. Uh, and I think you're right, Charlie, in preparation uh, for that upcoming spinoff. This is something that you and I have discussed multiple times, dating back at least a year or two. But I think it's time for us to do a viewing uh, of every Fast and Furious movie in the Dwayne Johnson era. So starting in five and working our way up and a single day of viewing <laughs> as well. I mean, I yeah. guess it's theoretically possible. I Although a lot of these movies have extended versions, so are we going to set some ground rules for this? Maybe like keep to the three the theatrical cut, and we start off in the morning. I think we could probably take you know breaks between each movie and get it. I think we could get it done. I think this is possible. Um, and as we move into our movie here, we're going to try things a little bit differently. Um, if you are a longtime listener, or even if this is your first time listening to our show. The way that we usually break down movies is to split them up act by act and kind of make our way through a movie, giving you a plot synopsis and then breaking it down uh, kind of scene by scene. The Fast and Furious movies, if you have any experience with them whatsoever, uh, you already know that their plot is just bonkers, just certifiably bonkers. And in many cases, the plot is really the least important thing about the movie. As we already said, we tried recording this once through uh, we spent about 45 minutes and we hadn't made it 20 minutes into the movie. So today, what we're going to do is give you just a two or three sentence plot summary of the entire film and then work our way through the best bits. Uh, so you're still going to get that same pornographic attention to detail uh, that you're used to in each Rock Talk episode. I think that's the best way to do it because I could talk about the first 25 minutes of this movie forever. It, so many crazy <laughs> things happen one after the other. It's like you don't even have time to catch your breath. And suddenly you've watched 45 minutes of this movie and it just flies by. But I think it really is. They set up some timeline things that I really have a problem with, but not really. I mean, we could talk about logic all day long for this movie and it wouldn't necessarily add up. But why waste our time? Because you and I both know that we love this movie not despite its flaws, but we love it because there are flaws, and it just makes it even crazier. Absolutely. Couldn't have said better myself. Uh, and so without any further ado, let's just give you this little plot summary here so we can get into talking about this glorious film, Furious 7. 
After defeating international terrorist Owen Shaw, Dominic Toretto, played by Vin Diesel, Brian O'Connor, played by Paul Walker, and the rest of their crew have separated to return to more normal lives. However, Deckard Shaw, played by Jason Statham, Owen's older brother, is thirsty for revenge. A slick government agent offers to help Dom and his team take care of Shaw in exchange for their help in rescuing a kidnapped computer hacker who has developed a powerful surveillance program. If you haven't seen Fast 6, we're basically picking up right where that movie lets off. Uh, And we have Deckard Shaw trying to get revenge on Dominic Toretto, Brian O'Connor, the rest of the Fast gang, uh, for putting his younger brother in the hospital. Uh, Charlie, right off the bat, these characters are iconic. Every single person on the Fast and Furious team. Is there anyone who stands out to you just right off the bat in Furious 7? I mean, in this movie, Statham is just unstoppable. He's so good. And I will argue he's the best part about Fast 8, too. He really makes us care about this character right off the bat. He is menacing. He I don't know if he's evil, but you can tell that he's doing this for his family. He's sort of like the bizarro dom in that way you understand his motivations in a way that is unique to his character in this fast and furious series deckard shaw is perhaps the most sympathetic villain that we have ever seen uh and that's sort of what makes him so compelling and you know again not to get ahead of ourselves in fast eight but this is why ultimately he becomes in my opinion part of the family uh you know which is problematic for a variety of reasons, which I'm sure we'll get he to. He killed Han. Yeah, then this there you go, right? I mean, Han. he but killed the coolest member of the entire family. Yeah, you and I oh. are in agreement about that, but that's something brilliant that this movie does. They do it in a way that, like, I guess if you stop and think about it, it's objectionable, but I just kind of buy it. Kurt Russell is yeah. in this movie. They bring him in this movie, and he is fantastic. He kind of, in my opinion, shows just about everybody up. He's been—he's a pro. He's been doing this. This has been his job for like 30 years, and he's just knocking it out of the park as this guy named Mr. Nobody. That's absolutely right. Uh, as Charlie mentioned, Kurt Russell plays this Mr. Nobody. That's the aforementioned government agent that we heard about in the plot summary. Um, he milks every line him and Statham truly are going like toe for toe in like crazy line delivery. And it just works so well in this movie. Yeah. Wow. And I think they do a good job of setting him up to like kind of create his own universe. And I think that's what they're going to do in Hobbs versus Shaw. He's going to kind of be the guy that runs point rather than Dom. So I think uh, you're going to see a lot more of Kurt Russell and probably Scott Eastwood's character from fast eight and the spinoff. Um, which I think they did a really great job. He's not, Kurt Russell's not in it a whole lot, but when he is in it, you, it's clear who he is, um, and, and his motivations, and it really sets things up for a nice spinoff. I want to get back for a second to Jason Statham. As we've said, he brings such a crazy electricity to this movie. It's really undeniable. Um, part of that we get in the opening sequence, which is oh my gosh, this, I love just, this beauty of a tracking shot um, with a monologue of, of Statham just talking about how he's going to get revenge uh, for his brother. Uh, it's And it's in this hospital. Like, Charlie, I don't know about you, but this opening sequence, it not only gave me full body chills, uh, of which I've never recovered, um, but it also made me so excited to watch this movie, even though I know we've both seen it like five or six times already. Oh, 
I kind of, for some reason, didn't focus on on this scene in my previous watchings. I felt like I was watching it for the first time. First of all, I never realized it was a, a single tracking shot, which was really cool. First, he's acting against nobody for most of it because he's he's talking to his unconscious brother who's in the hospital bed, and everything seems to be more or less kosher. You know, he's in the hospital talking to his brother, saying he's going to get revenge. And then as he walks out of this hospital, you realize that he is that he like blasted his way in there. There there's fires started, there are like nurses cowering in fear, there are police officers on the ground. It is great. You get his motivation right off the bat, but you also get a sense of how brutal and effective he is as an assassin. Right. And then this continues, you know, not Ten minutes later in the movie, when we get our first Dwayne Johnson sighting, he is, of course, uh, the special agent Hobbs, government agent who has been thus far tasked with tracking down Dominic Toretto, Brian O'Connor, and the rest of the crew. But at this point in the series, had sort of joined their team. But we get this unbelievable fight scene uh, between Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson, right, I mean, not ten minutes into this movie. And it is... I mean, I think it goes down as one of the greatest action sequences we've ever gotten. And that would make two for Jason Statham in his first 10 minutes of any Fast and Furious movie. <laughs> yeah, I would say probably the top three fights are Dom versus Hobbs in Fast Five. And then Michelle Rodriguez versus Gina Carano in Fast Five. And then I'd definitely say it's Hobbs versus Shaw in Fast Seven. I mean, I guess Fast Eight, you have the prison breakout scene. But that's not really, they're not really fighting each other. I like the one-on-one, just brutal fights. And what's so incredible about this fight in particular is that we get a, a real sense of the the kind of combatant that Jason Statham's going to be. Because you look at, at Jason Statham and Dwayne Johnson next to each other, and it looks like a no-brainer that Hobbs is going to walk away with this. Uh, but Statham is like powerful and agile I think that's what it is. It's the agility. He's able to get more punches in. Uh, and D- he, Dwayne Johnson almost looks slow in this fight, but he obviously he's he's really effective as well. He's almost like uh, like Donkey Kong and Super Smash Brothers. You know? Yes, You don't exactly. hit a lot, but when you do, it really makes a difference. But I, I have to say, the first thing, the first time we see Dwayne Johnson in this movie, he's sitting at the computer it's like it's probably midnight and he is drenched with sweat wearing a sleeveless under armor compression shirt oh i mean he is he, he may as well just gotten out of a swimming pool he is soaked from head to toe but it's not as if he's doing something strenuous he is literally if i recall correctly he's yeah he's at a computer like stamping paperwork like, oh yeah, that's right. How like, heavy? What how it, much pressure do you need to stamp something? When Dwayne Johnson stamps, he does it at maximum velocity. Also, doesn't he have down. like a secretary or somebody to do this paperwork for him? I feel right. like that's Who, a lot of grunt some... work for like the head of the diplomatic security service. But that just shows what a hard worker Dwayne Johnson is. He's gonna and that he's gonna put in the hours. That's right. Big dogs gotta eat. Uh, as we've learned big dog this, people gotta eat also are cool ooh, ooh. <laughs> so this but, we get a little sense of this character not just in his 
work ethic right off the top here, but also in the conversation, which I'm using that word, that term generously, that he has with Deckard Shaw right before they fight. And I think I think we got to listen to it. Absolutely. It's not really a conversation as much as it is one-liner after one-liner. So, uh, yeah, let's listen to that. Uh, just one sec. Sure as hell ain't the IT guy, so you better start talking before I break that finger six different ways and stick it right where the sun doesn't shine. Vision hubs, right? That's right. I'm also the last man on earth whose computer you want to be hacking into. You just earned yourself a dance with the devil boy. You're under arrest. I don't care about your computer. I'm here for the team that crippled my brother. There ain't no goddamn team. It was just one man, and he's standing right in front of you. The lady was right. You are a terrible liar. Okay, so there are a few choice lines in that, but I think my favorite one is, you sure as hell ain't the IT guy. (laughs) It's... I I want each of these catchphrases like put on a shirt and I want to wear them <laughs> under my clothing every day for the rest of my life. You've earned yourself a dance with the devil boy. <laughs> Just like what is going like these are not how normal people speak to each other. No, it's almost as if he's like working the mic at a WWE event again. He was like Oh, yeah. Yeah, he was like basically doing uh the rock impression from like 2001 which i don't hate oh yeah i am not opposed to it but you're actually onto something with that it did it does this is like fast five is really when these movies started to feel like some sort of a bit but in fast seven it's like everyone is doing a parody of themselves in the film like it's it's like hyper aware of itself in fast seven which i think is what makes it so much fun i think that this movie really strikes the balance of shark jumping versus being somewhat believable. And I think a lot of that is credit to the um, the stunts that they did. It's not really CGI. It's all A lot of it's practical. And it just seems visceral and raw and all those cliche words that, that people use to describe movies like this. But they're cliche for a reason. Even as it strikes that balance, is so aware of what it's doing. Like, there's a part later in this film, I forget when, but... I, oh, it's when they're jumping out of uh, the sky in their cars, uh, which we haven't even gotten to yet, um, when they're parachuting down uh, onto a mountain range. Paul Walker's character looks directly to camera and says, <laughs> just when you thought it couldn't get any crazier, huh? I <laughs> like, didn't catch that, but that is amazing. That's breaking the fourth wall. That's like Zach Morris and Saved by the Bell looking directly into camera and calling time out, essentially. <laughs> It's bonkers. And part of the, the craziness of this movie has got to be the timeline. Uh, when you put it into the greater context of these Fast and Furious movies, and especially what we've learned uh, having seen Fast 8, you know, there are so many issues that we could address. But, yeah. Charlie, there is a glaring one uh, <laughs> right off the bat in this first 10 minutes that is revealed. Yeah, I know we, we said that we weren't really going to break down the the plausibility of this movie. But something that you said at the top is that this movie 
posits that it picks up right after Fast 6. And if that's true, there's a couple of issues that I have, but here's a question I have for you. How, how many story days is this movie? Does this movie take place over a week, over a month? I, I can't make heads or tails of it. My my best guess, given what we see in this movie and given the the ludicrous pace with which these people move, is that it's a four or five day film at at most. Four days, <laughs> five days. Okay, so then let's break down some some timeline issues. So this movie picks up, let's say, a couple of weeks after the events of Fast Six, and I think that that is plausible when you look at the condition that um, Owen Shaw is in. He's still burned up from the events of Fast 6. He's still unconscious in the hospital, so it can't be too far. But then after Hobbs and Shaw fight, we go to another... I guess we get two hospital scenes in the first 20 minutes of this movie. Hobbs is now in the hospital, and Dom Toretto walks in and uh, to, to check up on him and, and to find out who did it. And Hobbs says, do you remember that London job? That guy, <laughs> Owen Shaw, like, yeah, dude, that just happened. Yeah. Oh, you mean the thing we did two weeks ago <laughs> together? Yeah. yeah. I jumped a car over a bridge. You don't remember that? <laughs> there was a tank. Uh, he has to be reminded. Maybe Dom has like short-term memory loss from all the times that he's hit his head. Oh, wouldn't be surprised the amount of times in this movie alone that he smashes into other cars on does purpose. Dom have, does Dom have CTE? Yeah, these movies paint a much darker picture than they've ever truly discussed. <laughs> I guess I don't really think about the long-term effects of all the injuries these people, because they have to be constantly getting concussions. And then the other part of this that is just very confusing is that uh, Elena, who is still working with Hobbs, what we learn in Fast 8 is that she, this during this entire movie, is conceivably pregnant with Dom's child. <laughs> exactly. And I don't know, because we see her at the tail end of the Hobbs and Shaw fight. She comes to sort of rescue Hobbs. Um, but the only thing that Hobbs can think to do to get out of the situation when Deckard Shaw throws a grenade at him is to jump out of a window onto a car. And he he protects Elena. That's how he ends up in the hospital. But Elena, this is like a time... three story jump, mind oh, you. Oh yeah, it, but she's conceivably pregnant. <laughs> that is right because it, because if this irresponsible. She why did if, she go back to save Hobbs? She had her baby if, to think about. If we're three weeks out from the events of Fast Six, like that, there is a fertilizer. There is a zygote within yeah. her body. Oh, for sure. I mean, I guess. This movie also posits that that baby was conceived at the beginning of Fast 6. So how many story days was that? <laughs> like, she it could, she could be three weeks pregnant or three months pregnant. Fast 6 is another tough one to, to pin down uh, timeline-wise. But yeah, she's pregnant in this movie. We're just a couple of boys talking about babies <laughs> on Rock Talk. Welcome um, to Baby Talk, where we talk about babies <laughs> and know nothing about them. It really is it really is confusing though and one of the things when you talk about the timeline moving forward with these Fast and Furious movies is how the franchise was going to tackle the untimely and unfortunate death of the late Paul Walker which occurred uh, in the middle of the filming of this movie Furious 7. 
that was a big question going into this film was what they were going to do with Paul Walker, uh, how the CGI was going to look. They use a mix of CGI and even his brother Caleb uh, to kind of make up for some of the scenes that Paul Walker himself couldn't shoot. Charlie, in this movie, what were your thoughts on, you know, we've talked about a few of the characters here, but Paul Walker, Brian O'Connor is a huge part of this franchise. Uh, what were your thoughts on, you know, both the knowledge that we we're going to lose him in this movie and how this movie uh, was able to, you know, get around the fact that he, the actor, was gone? I think visually, this movie did a really great job of replacing Paul Walker with his brother. Towards the end of the movie, we get a lot of fight scenes. They're kind of in dark alleyways or unlit corridors. You don't really get a good shot of his face, but it all seems to be pretty fluid. The one time that we really do get a full-on CGI uh, Paul Walker is at the end, which basically uh, works as a tribute. But it's so obvious that it doesn't bother me too bad. My one problem with how they handled his character is story-wise. Again, they don't kill off his, they don't kill off Brian O'Connor. They have him move away with his family. There's just one more plot issue uh, I want to bring up before we move into some of the the action sequences later in this movie, and that is we've mentioned it uh, just a little bit here, but but Han, the entire issue of Han and the callback that this movie does to Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift because it is utter insanity the way that it's, they decide to handle it in this movie. It's not really even a callback because this is essentially the. This is essentially the merging of the two Fast and Furious timelines. Um, you know, it was revealed after Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift came out that it was indeed a uh, a prequel, and it was actually set in the year 2015. So now they have to make sense of Fast and Furious Tokyo Drift in this movie. But it presents a lot of weirdness in this movie, specifically in the sense that, you know, 20 minutes into the movie, of Fast 7 is when Statham kills Han here. So there's sort of some weirdness just timeline-wise. But I think what's even weirder is the decision to bring back the actor who plays an 18-year-old in Tokyo (laughs) Drift and just pretend that he's still 18 in Fast 7 when this this actor is at least 40, like generously. And the funniest thing about it is, so they have to stitch in some original footage from Tokyo Drift into this movie to make it make sense. So you get Dom showing up in Tokyo and you get 2003 footage of this character, Sean Boswell, uh, hard cut to 2015 footage of him trying to be the same character just moments later. You can definitely see how much he's aged because it's right next to the footage of him from 15 years ago. Like, his hairline is, like, decimated. Like, <laughs> he, he just looks tired, generally. It's really I mean, kind of sad. I mean, he looks okay. I mean, he, it's not like he looks like crap, but he definitely just, he can't pass for 18. This man yeah. probably has children. Like, oh, elementary oh, school age children. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, that's, this is just, a, it's just problematic. I want to get into, though, we need to talk about the insane stunt work, and we can kind of just work our way through a few of them that stood out to us. Charlie, is there anything just kind of from where we are in the film uh, moving down, is there anything that sticks out to you as just really fun uh, action sequence or stunt work? Yeah, I mean, basically we have 
in the first act, one of the best stunts I've ever seen. And in most movies, this would be like the, the finale, but not for Furious 7. So we start with like skydiving cars, essentially, which I think is fantastic. A lot of it was done practically, and you can really feel that. And I think you could make the case that it's the best stunt in the movie. I, I think there's a, an argument to be made. It is so cool to see these cars you know, dangling by parachutes and flipping head over heel uh, down to the, the mountain range of which the team lands on. In addition to this, this is the moment when Paul Walker looks to camera and says just when he didn't think it could any, <laughs> get any better. But this also is one of my favorite Dom lines in the movie uh, is when he, right as they're about to fall, he goes, this time it ain't just about being fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but did you think that he was going to continue that line and say, it's about being furious. Well, yeah, that was, and that's what I, I don't know. I don't know what, how could you miss that opportunity? I, know. I think everyone would have been, you know, waiting on pins and needles for him to finish that line. This is just such sheer fun. It's unlike anything I've seen in another movie. And these sequences, like this, this car out of the airplane onto the mountain range, which then turns into, you know, auto combat uh which turns into a bus dangling off a cliff which turns into a car tumbling oh letty saving paul i thought was amazing off the edge of the cliff yeah you get this like incredible bullet time sequence with this car with letty saving paul walker but what's insane is that you know it's like 20 straight minutes of relentless action and perfectly choreographed stunts it's i mean there is no other franchise that does anything like this so reliably and so consistent every time yeah, I mean, I think it goes, let's see, from minute 42 to an hour and two minutes into the movie. You know, at minute 42, you have cars falling out of planes. At an hour and two minutes, you have Dom driving off the side of a cliff with Ramses, which I think is the funniest thing in the world. That he thought that the best option was just to drive straight off a cliff and flip the car about 10 times. Yeah, and that's Dom for you. And we, you mentioned Ramses. This is the hacker that Mr. Nobody, the government agent, wanted Dom to find. Ramsey's responsible for creating an, a, a tool in this movie called the God's Eye, uh, which is kind of the driving force behind a lot of the plot. Essentially, if Dom and Paul Walker can get a hold of Ramses, they can get the God's Eye. If they have the God's Eye, it's revealed they then will have the power to find Shaw and track him down anywhere in the world because Charlie this this tool uh is revealed to be a pretty pretty sweet deal yeah and I think it might be worth playing this clip between Dom and Mr. Nobody to kind of get an idea of what this uh God's eye is and you have a couple of really really great lines so let's play that clip look Shaw's power is that he's a he's a shadow He's really good at getting in and out of places without being seen and leaving nothing but a body count in his wake. I mean, he's a legitimate English badass. But to be honest with you, Dom, I don't give two shits about Deckard Shaw. It's you I want. Because you and I can help each other get what we both need. I'm listening. Just recently, a private military company led by a wanted terrorist named Mose Jaconde kidnapped a hacker known only by the name Ramsey. Now, Lady Liberty's got her panties in a bunch over this, but rightfully so, because this Ramsey has created something interesting. Bring it up. Yes, sir. Say hello to God's eye. Now, this little bastard hacks into anything that's on the digital network. That means every cell phone, satellite, ATM machine, and computer simultaneously. 
it's got a microphone or a lens, God's eye can find you. So you invited me here to show me a tracking device? On steroids, lots of them. Let me put it to you this way. It took us nearly a decade to find Osama bin Laden. With this, we'd have located him anywhere on the planet in a couple of hours. Now that's a serious piece of machinery that could be catastrophic in the wrong hands. But for some very nauseating political reasons, any rescue plans involving any U.S. government forces or entity has been strictly ruled out. So, this thing's like a tracking device on steroids. Lots of them. <laughs> real smooth, real clear explanation there, Kurt Russell. Um, it's actually not bad. They really get through a lot of uh, a lot of plot. They set up a lot of stuff for it very quickly, um, and it makes a lot more sense than a lot of these movies. It's a pretty linear story. Yeah, it's... Of all the Fast and Furious movies, at least we get this basically, like, three-sentence lineup of what the team needs to do, where they need to go, and who they need to stop, uh, which is nice. Yeah, uh, basically he's like, now, Dom, let me talk for three minutes to tell you a little bit about exposition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And ultimately, once they've captured Ramsey, uh, we do find out that the God's Eye is in Abu Dhabi, which brings us to the next sort of big set piece in this movie. Uh, it's this party of a Jordanian prince that Dom Toretto and Paul Walker and the gang, they infiltrate in order to steal the God's Eye uh, from, I guess what we learn is it's embedded inside a luxury car, uh, like like 200 floors up in this luxury apartment building. Yeah, and, and before we get there, we get a, a beach scene in Abu Dhabi that I can only describe as like butt beach. We get so many butt shots, and this is the second scene in this movie where it's like gratuitous female butt over and over. The first of which is Race Wars, which is something we haven't talked about yet. But I just, they could have thought of a better name for this uh, racing festival than Race Wars. I hate Race Wars. Um, <laughs> both of them, the real life kind and the Fast and Furious one. You mean it's... you don't like Iggy Azalea cameos? Well, uh, why is she in this? The the semi-nudity in this movie is oh, yeah. unlike like, anything I've ever seen in a Fast and Furious film. They know who their audience is, which is like 13-year-old boys. Oh, my God. It's And even to the extent that they are taking, you know, main character played by women and, like, gratuitously gawking at them, too. Like, no one is spared. It's not just extras. It's like... It's kind of like this very gross male gaze, like uh, all the way yeah, through this movie. Definitely, definitely. And that actually gets a little old and something that I think we don't see quite as much in Fast 8. But you're right. I think the female characters, especially in this movie, don't necessarily have all that much to do. And a lot of that culminated with um, Michelle Rodriguez's recent beef um, with the producers of this movie saying that she's not going to come back unless they write a better uh, a better storyline for her and she I think she's well within her rights although in Abu Dhabi we get a fantastic fight scene between Michelle Rodriguez and Ronda Rousey who's the worst actress I think I've ever seen in my life that's right folks Ronda Rousey uh, UFC superstar is in Fast and Furious 7 uh, and as Charlie said she is terrible um, which was but Ronda Rousey's acting is really giving me pause for her WWE career I think you you said that you watched uh, Monday Night Raw. 
last night and she was terrible? I did. On my plane, I watched, thank you, Southwest Airlines. I watched Monday Night Raw live and she was god awful. Seriously, just no emotion, uh, smiling at like weird, inappropriate moments. Very much matching kind of what her role in Fury 7 looked like. Um, just a fun fact about her appearance in this movie. Ronda Rousey was at the height of her UFC career uh, in 2015. But after she appeared in Fast and Furious 7, just like months later, she lost the biggest match of her career to Holly Holm in UFC 193. And then just one year later, she lost to Amanda Nunez, completely knocking her out of the UFC. And as we mentioned, make she's now in the WWE. But like, I think that this movie, you mentioned Iggy Azalea, where's she doing? I don't know. I think this movie is like killing the careers of uh, America's America's uh, <laughs> women. I think that's well, just what's happening. The third cameo that we get in this movie is T-Pain, and he's still going strong. So, you know, maybe maybe there's some smoke here, but maybe not a lot of fire to that theory. We see T-Pain. He's DJing at this party for, what is it, the, the summer solstice, the longest day of the year. So they're having a big party, and the plot line here is that Tyrese needs to distract everybody at this party so that Dom and Brian can go and get get, get the god's eye from this car, the Lycan Hypersport. Uh, but the way that Tyrese goes about things, I think, is a little weird. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about because... <laughs> it's grody. It is. Oh, it is uncomfortable and inappropriate. And frankly, I don't know where he gets off using this kind of... <laughs> gnarly language in this movie what what we're talking about is that his distraction is to grab a random girl from this party and say it's her 18th birthday and start singing her happy birthday get everyone around in a circle focusing on him but then after the whole plot fails he goes up to this girl and says and uh, like makes a joke about something was like missiles in her shirt oh yeah the term like chest missiles is definitely used and, like, if he is right and she's 18 years old, that is, oh, gross, Tyrese. That means she was 17 yesterday in movie time. <laughs> right. Like, Which is, I don't know what the laws are in Abu Dhabi, but I, I guess if it's technically legal here. I mean, like, basically, I'm sure that Tyrese defended Roy Moore <laughs> <laughs> is what I'm getting at. And I think that maybe we're seeing a lot, you know, the, maybe the real Tyrese lately in the news. Yeah, yeah, Tyrese. And it all started here. Downhill spiral starting in Fast and Furious 7 for Tyrese. <laughs> but this act also provides us what has become possibly the most widely known iconic uh, stunt from the film. And that is this car jumping between three Abu Dhabi skyscrapers. Uh, and Charlie, I don't know. It's It's arguably just as impressive as the cars flying out a helicopter bit from earlier in the movie, but it might not be as practically done. Is that right? Right. right. And that's, and that's my only issue with it. I think it's a really cool idea and the execution for the most part is jaw dropping, but it is so CGI that, you know, I, I just don't see it as quite as big of an achievement as the, the planes falling out of the sky. Uh, that being said, it still looks really, really cool. I have to say, though, I think the more impressive thing to me in this movie is how long uh, Dom lifted up that car for, for Brian to look under it. 
Like he lifts up two of the wheels of this car like it's no big deal and does it for a while. Oh, yeah. He kind of does like a little like and then <laughs> he's just and then he's just holding it for what feels like 15 minutes of movie time. Oh, for sure. I mean, he's basically making the same face that I make when I'm carrying like a heavy grocery grocery bag. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. When you've got the eggs and milk in one arm and the Oreos <laughs> and a rotisserie chicken in the other. Yeah. <laughs> but but essentially, they get the God's eye and then they're able to track down Owen Shaw so they take it back to Los Angeles, which is where our boy Dwayne gets back into the action. That's right. Dwayne Johnson has been out of commission for basically this entire movie. You might remember Which we is mentioned like five days, <laughs> right? For the entire five day length of this film, um, but he is still recuperating from his the massive injuries inflicted within the first ten minutes of the film when he dives out of the third story window with Elena. Um, that being said, we get uh, perhaps the coolest comeback moment of any Dwayne Johnson film in history. Uh, when he looks up on the TV and sees that the gang is in trouble and needs his help. Oh, yeah, and it inspired our stinger that we use every single week, and that is Daddy's Gotta Go to Work. One thing that we learn about Dwayne Johnson's character in this movie that we didn't know at the until this point is that he had a young daughter. So uh, that's 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 why Dwayne Johnson's the daddy. That's right, and I wish he was my daddy. Um, but that, <laughs> we get, the way that he comes back to action here you know at the beginning of this movie we learned the extent of his injuries it's like broken collarbone like broken legs like broken like arms hip. yeah like this dude is he's beat up but apparently all it takes for Dwayne Johnson to get back into action is like three pain med pills and just the literal flexing out of a cast <laughs> it's crazy the fact that you know five days earlier he's like hospitalized and in traction with these cast and then all of a sudden he's like carrying around a, a, a minigun off of a helicopter or a drone or whatever that thing crashed was it's it's crazy but for some reason it fits this movie so well that i have zero problems oh it made perfect sense in the context of what we had seen so far uh, and that scene i just want to mention you had said that he has this minigun he only gets that minigun after he arrives to like the scene of the action, uh, crashing an ambulance, which he has apparently commandeered from the hospital, uh, off of a bridge onto a drone, and then rips the minigun from the wreckage of the drone. Like I was screaming at this point in the movie. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, but it's downright irresponsible for him to, to take an ambulance because you don't know how many people needed that ambulance in you know, other parts of Los Angeles. Uh, but one really cool thing I wanted to mention very briefly is we get this amazing fight between Statham and Dom on top of this parking garage. Some of the cool trivia in this scene is they have a couple of callbacks to the transporter movies. So the the only other two cars on top of this roof, other than the cars that they drove up there, is a BMW from the tran from the original transporter, and then the Audi from the transporter two. Oh, I didn't catch that. Yeah, it's super super cool. Uh, those are also pretty amazing movies. But it just goes to show you that I think they had just a ton of fun making this movie. And that really translates. I think so, too. And you see that uh, in, like, really, there's 20 minutes left in this movie. Every single, even, like, this this final fight that you mentioned, like, 
We are getting Dom and Shaw hitting each other with crossbars. There's no blood. That's like a very important thing in this film. There's apparently no bruising or blood. Nobody uh, in... bleeds. No, they are just they are just walloping each other to death uh, without any apparent side effects. So Dom and Hobbs end up taking down Jaconde uh, out of his helicopter. Dom puts uh, a backpack full of grenades on one of the skids of the helicopter in midair, ends up crashing and essentially dying. We can, we'll circle back to that. And then Dwayne Johnson uses the minigun, or I guess he uses his regular handgun, to blow up the grenades, thus blowing up the helicopter and saving the day. It's so cool. I mean, it is just unbelievable, but it does present... To me, what is a kind of weird end moment when Dom is, like, kind of dead laying on the ground. He's, like, straight up dead. Like, he just crashes car from just so high up in the air. Again, didn't use a seatbelt from what we can tell. But here's the Uh, thing. This killed him. But earlier on in the movie, he intentionally ran his car off the side of a cliff and rolled it. 10 times to me, which is like a much more violent crash. And he walked out of that with no bruises, no cuts, nothing. But suddenly this kills him. There's really doesn't seem to be any consistency. It doesn't add up. None of it adds up, but um, I still love it. Yeah. And that's just what it's just. So that's something about this movie that could basically be the tagline for the fast and furious movies. It doesn't add up, but we still love it despite it. And I mean, that's pretty much the movie. We do get this final send off, as we mentioned, that the late Paul Walker at the time of this film, uh, we kind of get this this touching tribute between Dom, Paul Walker's character. And this Wiz Khalifa song. Yeah, which I think I think won a Grammy. I think that song. At one point, it was the most viewed music video on YouTube. Still the most viewed on my channel. Let me tell you that. But yeah, this movie, it kind of ends on a bittersweet note. And, you know, we, there was a lot of questions about how are they going to move forward in Fast 8. And we will tackle that movie at a later date. But this really, you know, in terms of the Fast and Furious franchise, 5, 6, and 7 are really, Charlie, I think you said it earlier. They are. They do make up the New Testament of this of this film franchise. Um, and 7 really kind of put a cap on, on the work they had done. And it's hard to imagine a better way for it to end. Oh, yeah, I think that if they wanted to, they could have ended it with this movie and uh, it would have wrapped up the whole storyline. But there was more money to be made, so they immediately signed a contract for three more. So they're going to make at least through ten, and there's no telling how many of those Hobbs and Shaw spinoffs there will be. Franchise Viagra. (laughs) All right, Charlie, with all of this being said, uh, I... Do I even need to ask, does Dwayne Johnson pass the franchise Viagra test in Fast 7? Yeah, we're going to be real brief with this. Yes, he passes all three tenets, uh, hard work, charisma, and physique. Straight across the board. Although, you know what, he's not in this movie nearly as much as he is in Fast 6. We've discussed it before, but Fast 6 is really the definitive Hobbs movie. Um, But I think that he reaches higher peaks in this movie. Uh, so I think that he just he kills it in this movie. Everyone kills it in this movie besides Ronda Rousey. Uh, so yeah, across the board, nailed it. Uh, Want to see a sequel? Saw the sequel. Can't wait for the next one. I could not agree more. But I guess the question is, if you're going to have to rank this movie uh, on your Dwayne Johnson ranking list, do you have 
Is there a place that you can slot it in? What, what are you going to do with this? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've defended the fact that I've, I've said that Fast Five is my favorite Fast and Furious movie. Watching Furious 7, I was on board like every single minute. And it's not a short movie. I watched the extended version, which is like two hours and 20 plus minutes. And my Achilles heel is long movies. Uh, <laughs> so I think just for that alone, I'm going to slot it as my number one favorite Dwayne Johnson movie. And I can't imagine anything knocking it off. I am right there with you. Uh, I, I can tell you right off the bat, this the my current number one is also Fast Five. But something about Furious 7 is so addicting uh, and so completely rewatchable. He's not in it as much as some of his other films. He's not, you know, this isn't a Jumanji. It's not a pain and gain. But like you said in your fran- franchise Viagra breakdown, the moments that Dwayne Johnson are is in this movie uh, are some of the most fun of all of, you know, film watching experience that I've ever encountered. Uh, and for those reasons, I will put this as my number one movie as well uh, in my Rock Talk rankings to date. Rock Talk Nation, thank you for listening to our show and thank you for your support of Rock Talk. Uh, We are still the number one rated, reviewed, listened to, downloaded, streamed, followed, liked, favorited, any other metric of social media support you can think of. We are the top uh, Dwayne Johnson themed podcast on the face of the earth. It's all because of you and your support and your patronage of our show. Uh, If you have not yet, please don't forget to follow us on all of our social media platforms. That includes Twitter and Instagram, where you can find us at Rock Talk Pod, as well as Facebook.com at Facebook.com slash Rock Talk Pod. And the number one thing that you can do to help us out if you like the show is to leave us a review on iTunes. Give us five stars if you can. That'd help us out. And uh, join us next week as we look at a new mini episode. We'll break down a topical rock topic of the week. But until then, this has been Rock Talk. Damn, who knew? All the planes we flew, good things we've been through. Then I'll be standing right here talking to you about another path. I know we love to hit the road and laugh, but something told me that it wouldn't last. Had to switch up, look at things different, see the bigger picture. Those were the days, hard work forever pays. Now I see you in a better place. See you in a better place. Uh. Can we not talk about family when family's all that we got? Everything I would do, you were standing there by my side. And now you gon' be with me for the last ride. It's been a long day without you, my friend. And I'll tell you all about it when I see you again. We've come a long way from where we began. You know, we started. Oh, I'll tell you.